0: Well, good evening, everybody. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, by your great grace and in your mercy, we pray that you might enlighten our darkness, that you would shine the truth of your word, into our hearts and minds tonight so that we might know you better, love you more, and serve and live for you in all that we do, to Jesus' glory and in the power of your spirit. Amen. So apparently, hard to believe, but apparently six million Australians watched the royal wedding. Six million Australians watched this wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Put your hands up if you were one of those six million. Okay, so that generated a bit more discussion than I expected. Um, I mean, six million, that's a lot of people, right? That's one in four Australians. That is a big number. Why? Why was this particular event so popular? I suspect that in part it was the Cinderella effect. A dashing prince marries a beautiful commoner. Ah, yes, yes, it could have been you. (laughs) Maybe for some... Maybe your grandparents' generation. Maybe they watched it out of some vestige of affection for the British monarchy. But for most people, I suspect that the reason they watched was for the hats. (laughs) Yes, incredibly stupid hats. Incredibly expensive stupid hats. We watched it because we like to see people dress up. We watched it for the pageantry. Uh, You may have heard that even though the ratings were high, they weren't as high as when Prince Charles wed Lady Diana. Quite possibly that's actually a reflection of the declining relevance of the British monarchy in contemporary Australia. But I suspect, in all seriousness, that it's also a reflection of a decline In the relevance of marriage today. William and Cates was an archaic monarchy going through what was for most people an archaic ritual, which really is a great shame. Not the decline in popularity of the royals, I mean the fact that our society no longer gets Christian marriage. Christian marriage is the high watermark of love. And our society, like every human society that's ever existed, we're really into love. I say Christian marriage is the high watermark of love because according to the Bible, that is where lifelong commitment, affection, companionship and sex, all as God has gloriously designed and planned it, all come together. Tragically, many, many marriages fall a long way short of this high watermark. mark, I know that. But within the Christian scriptures, actually, there is an even greater love, an even greater love than this high-water mark. It's the king tide, if you like, over at the high-water mark when it comes to love. And in fact, of this greater love, even the very best human marriage is but a pale reflection. And that greatest of loves is the love that the Lord Jesus has for the church that he's established around himself. So I'm on page 23 of your book, Jesus' love for his church. Have a look there at what Paul, the apostle, says to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 5:21 to 33. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Saviour. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind yes so that she may be holy and without blemish in the same way wives should in the same way sorry husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own body but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it just as Christ does for the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself and a wife should respect her husband. So Paul's point is that human marriage between a man and a woman is to be modelled on the Lord Jesus' relationship with his church. And what I want us to see here is the sort of love that Jesus has for his church. There's three things you learn here, I think, about Jesus' love for his church. First of all, we see the extent of Jesus' love for his church. Look at verse 25 there. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus' love for his church is sacrificial. He put his people ahead of himself, to the point of dying for his people. Jesus' love for the church is not superficial, it isn't cheap, it isn't fleeting. No, it's costly, it was substantial, and it's astonishingly humble. That's the extent of Jesus' love. We also learn about the end or the purpose of Jesus' love for his church. Verses 26-27. It was to make the church holy, that is to remove all the stains from sin from his people, the church. To prepare and present his church to himself as a perfect bride without any spot or wrinkle or blemish. And of course, that was the very thing that, as his people, we couldn't do that for ourselves. We couldn't remove that stain of sin. He did the very thing that we most needed. We needed to be holy, to be without blemish before him. And so he did it for us in great love. And third, we see the everydayness of Jesus' love for his church. So verse 29... Christ nourishes and tenderly cares for the church, his body. So it's not as though Jesus' love towards the church stopped at the cross. Jesus continues to love and care for his church day by day as he cares for his own body. On a daily basis, he cares for us. You know, if you were to say one thing about the church, one statement, that captured the wonder and the majesty of the church. Surely it would have to be this, wouldn't it? That the church is loved by Jesus. The church is loved by Jesus with this sort of love, to this sort of extent, to this end, with this everydayness about it. And then when you think about your experience of church, right, in all of its grit, in all of its lack of impressiveness, that's a pretty amazing truth, actually, that the one thing you could say about it, it's loved by Jesus. Really? This church? I mean, it's okay. The church, this church is loved by Jesus to this extent to this end, with this everydayness about it. And Jesus' great love for his church is shown in the great grace that he extends to us. Listen to Paul's words a bit earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 9. Paul writes, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast." Here's this astounding, amazing transformation, right? Verses 1 to 3, we were dead in our sins, we were children of wrath, but, verse 4, God made us alive with Christ. And three times we're reminded by Paul that this transformation is because of grace. His unmerited kindness to us, undeserved kindness. Three times we're told it's because of grace that this happened to you. So end of verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Again then in verse 7 and again in verse 8. In fact, in verse 7, Paul describes it as the immeasurable riches of God's grace. You know how we just sort of float over these? Think about it. The immeasurable riches. Paul is stretching the limits of, of, of language. It's immeasurable, the riches of his grace. I mean, measure it out if you can. How big is his grace? One, two, three. No, you can't. You've got to. Keep. It's immeasurable, the riches of his grace to us in Christ Jesus. What is behind this incredible, immeasurable grace, according to this passage? It's there in verse 4. It's out of his great love with which he's loved us that he showers this grace on us. So just as God rescued the Israelites out of slavery, which we saw yesterday morning, not because of their goodness, not because of their impressiveness, but purely out of his love and faithfulness, so also the church has been established out of great grace and love. I'll on top of the next page, actually, you can see how Paul describes it for himself thinking about those truths, but bringing it down to the personal. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 to 17. It's an incredible personal moment from the Apostle Paul as he writes to his younger co-worker, Timothy. He writes here, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence, but I received mercy. Because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. But for that very reason I receive mercy. So that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying that you want to know that God's grace extends to you? you? You want to be sure that it extends to you? You want reassurance? Look at me then. I persecuted Jesus' church. I had Christians locked up and killed. Yet Jesus' grace overflowed for me. He didn't scrape me through. He didn't grudgingly give it to me. His grace towards me overflowed. That is the amazing, the astounding, gracious love of God in Jesus Christ. And friends, do you know, do you know that overflowing gracious love of God in your own life? Can you testify like the Apostle Paul? Praise God that there's one more person in the room today who can say, yes, you know what? I can testify that his grace overflows for me. Can you testify to that? Do you know his great grace? His love for you? If you don't know Jesus' gracious love towards you, if you've not yet turned to him in thanks and submission, this week would be a great time to do it. Consider who Jesus is this week. Search the scriptures. Consider what he's done. Consider what response you're going to make ask all your hard questions if he's true he can stand up to any number of questions get some answers and consider jesus great and gracious love towards you because as paul says christ jesus came into the world to save sinners and that's talking about you so that's some reflection on the gracious love jesus has shown his church What we want to do now is trying to work out how does that shape our life together as his church. But before we get to that application, we have to think through the nature of the church. Now, I'm at part B on page 24. The achievement of God's grace, a new humanity. Look at how Paul describes the achievement of God's gracious love. We're still in Ephesians here, actually. Ephesians chapter 2, this time verses 11 to 22. So then, writes Paul, remember that at one time you gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands remember that you were at that time without christ being aliens from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world okay so paul here is talking about the fact that prior to the death of jesus if you were a gentile then you were excluded from the people of God. We saw that yesterday morning. Under the old covenant, you could only be a member of God's people if you became an Israelite, if you became a Jew. So let's now pick it up at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace. In His flesh, He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is, the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So you see here, what Jesus has achieved through his death, which, as Paul puts it, through his blood, he's abolished the old covenant law. So you remember from yesterday, the Torah, the law, was what defined God's old covenant people. It was what set them apart from all the other nations. In an old covenant world, there really were only two types of people. There was the nation of Israel who kept the Torah, the law, and there was everybody else. The law was the dividing line. But in his death, Jesus has abolished the law, and so he's demolished the fundamental dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Instead, verse 15, Jesus has made in himself one new humanity in place of the two. The new humanity is the body of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, we're both reconciled to God at the cross in the one body of Jesus. And because we're now one body, not Jew and Gentile anymore, but now one body in Christ, Jesus has established peace between Jew and Gentile believers. The breaking down of all the barriers between people as we come together as Christ's body, extends past this Jew-Gentile distinction. So elsewhere you can see in the New Testament, the same point is made. So Galatians 3.28, Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male or female, all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It breaks down all the dividing lines. You can see then the consequences For These Gentiles who formerly were excluded pick it up at verse 19 So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So as Gentiles in Christ, we're no longer excluded, right? We are no longer aliens, we're now fellow citizens, we're fellow members of God's household, or as Paul puts it, you're now a brick. You're fellow bricks in God's building. Now before we tease out some of the implications of the oneness of this church, which is going to be very significant... I want to step back and note two other implications of what Paul's saying. So I'm on page 25. Two important implications. First of all, about the church and God's purposes for humanity. The fact that the church is God's one new humanity gives an incredible significance to Jesus' church in the world today. In Jesus and the church... God has pressed the reset button for the human race. In Jesus and the church, God has pressed the reset button for the human race. Instead of humanity stemming from Adam, there's now a new humanity stemming from Jesus, namely Jesus and his disciples, the church. And we can say even more. To be the human being God has made you to be means being part of this one new humanity. To be part of the church is to be as fully human as you can actually be this side of the new creation. The church gathered around Jesus is a vital part of God's answer to the fall of Adam There is no salvation outside of this church. Not in the sense that the church dishes out salvation. Salvation is purely from Jesus, it's from Christ, not from the church. But there's no salvation outside the church because the church as the one new humanity gathered around Jesus is the community of the saved. To be a human being as God intends you to be, this side of glory means being part of the church. The church holds out the life that really is life to the world. The church is the most important gathering of people in the world. Not the United Nations. Okay, no one really thought that anyway. Not any government, not any cabinet, not any, not any white house, brown house, yellow house, pink house, whatever other house people want to live in. The most, the most important gathering of people in the world is the church. And if you don't believe that, if you don't actually think that's so, then you haven't really understood what the church is. You don't, 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 haven't really got what it means to be the church, to be this one new humanity in Jesus. Second implication I want to highlight to you is uh, maybe easier to grasp, but it's no less radical. It's a why you can't join the church after becoming a Christian. Why you can't join the church after becoming a Christian. So many times you hear people talking as in the first cartoon there on your page. I've become a Christian. Jesus says, great, so let me tell you about my church. Oh, I'm not really going to be into that. Uh, the, The problem with the woman in the cartoon is that in her mind, she's completely separated being a Christian ...from being part of Jesus' church. So much so that for her, being part of Jesus' church is an optional extra. But this actually creates a division where there actually can't be one. See, when you come to Christ in faith, you become a member of his body. You become a member of this new humanity gathered around Jesus. Or to use other images there from Ephesians 2, you become a brick built together spiritually with the other bricks to be a holy temple, to be a dwelling place for God. So becoming part of the church is not a second step because you become part of Jesus' church when you become a Christian. Now, naturally, once you've become a member of Jesus' body, you'll want to meet together with other parts of His body. You'll want to get together with other bricks to give expression to the reality That is already the case. We gather together to give expression to this reality that's already the case. We are his body. We are one new humanity. So yes, having become a Christian and and therefore become part of his church, you want to find a local church or some church where you can give that membership expression. But it's not a second step. It's giving expression to what's already spiritually the case. Now, of course, there's a second common mistake that can be made as well, which is there in the second scenario. I've started to go to church, she says. That's good, says Jesus. But you know it doesn't make you one of my people, right? Have a read of Matthew 13, 24 to 30, says Jesus. So she checks her Bible app on her iPad... As many of you are doing right now, which talks about, in that parable, Jesus talks about how that he he likens his church to a field in which there are both wheat and weeds. And Jesus says it won't be until the final harvesting, won't be until the final judgment day that the wheat and the weeds will be separated. So you can go to church every week you can be up to your eyeballs in church stuff. You can you can have been you can have be baptized, you can be on the eldership board, you can be pastoring a mega church. None of that actually means you're a follower of Jesus. There will always be wheat and weeds. Wheat and weeds in Jesus' field. Now, going to church is not a bad thing. It's excellent, right? We should all go to church, but it's not trusting in Jesus. It's not the same as knowing Jesus' gracious love and submitting to Him as your Lord and Saviour. And may I say, if that's you, if you've been going to church, but you know in yourself you're not really part of His church because you haven't made that personal commitment to Him, then it's time to make a change, friend. Why don't you actually join His church? Put your trust in him and become part of his body. Now at this point I do need to go on a little aside to clarify some of our terminology about the church. What church, which church are we talking about? It's quite confusing when we talk about church because we use the same word church to refer to many different things. You can see some of the tensions there on page 26. Sometimes we mean a building. Sometimes we mean the people who go to the building. Sometimes we mean a particular congregation. Sometimes we mean actually a a church that has a building and has several congregations all meeting inside it at different times. That's sort of the one church of Christ Church blarvel, but it meets at three separate times. And the people might not have much to do with each other. We call that a church as well. Then sometimes we talk about the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church of Australia, referring to a whole denomination. We call that a church. Then again, we can talk about the worldwide church, the global aggregate of all of Jesus' disciples. I just thought I'd throw in that economics term because I was so dismissive of economics students yesterday. They're easy to please. Um. Oh, drat. Now I'm going to have to do another one. Okay, all right. So how can we call all the Christians around the world as his church when we never gather? If church means gathering. Finally, we can distinguish between what's been traditionally called the church militant, means all the followers of Jesus currently living on planet earth, militant because we're the ones who are waging battle against the world, the flesh and the devil. And the church universal, by which we mean the body of believers spread throughout all time and space. So there's some of the different ways we tend to use the word church. But when the Bible uses the word church, to what does it refer? Well, the answer is when the New Testament uses the word church, it usually refers to just one of two things. Only two things. Either it refers to what I've called the church universal, the sort of sum total of all followers of Jesus, living or dead, Jesus and his church, the whole lot, or it refers to a local gathering of believers, this particular congregation that meets together. But the important thing to note is that the local congregation that meets together is more than just a segment of the universal church this local little gathering this local church is in itself a complete body of christ this local gathering isn't just a little bit it's not just oh well this particular church it's such a shame it's just three arms and two eyes Each local gathering is the body of Christ. So whatever congregation you attend, no matter how big or how small, it is the body of Christ of which Jesus is the head. So this has really helpful implications for us. First of all, it tells us about the dignity, the dignity of the local church the gathering of believers, Sunday by Sunday or whatever day you gather. So please don't despise the local church. Don't despise it for its lack of impressiveness. Not merely because it's incredibly arrogant, frankly, to look down on Jesus' people for whom he died. But but theologically, this little gathering of believers no matter how unimpressive in human terms, no matter how awkward or how unhip, this is the precious body of Christ, of whom he is the head and saviour. And in this faltering, this fallible but faithful body of believers is the new humanity that Jesus has formed around himself. Friend, the local church, the, the little congreg, the congregation of believers, that, you, that is where it is at. That is where it is at. Happening right there at 6.47 on a Sunday night. Why do we meet at stupid times? I don't know. <laughs> but that's where it's at. Tragically, the great blessing of EU, of the EU, actually, or of conferences like this, is that these unusual gatherings of God's people can make you dissatisfied with the regular gathering, with the body of Christ of which you're a part. And frankly, if the EU or any conference you attend doesn't leave you more enthusiastic about your local gathering... Something really has gone wrong. So please don't despise the local church because of what you perceive its lack of wow factor. We very easily sit in judgment over this or that church because of its lack of impressive ministry or the music isn't any good or the preaching isn't dynamic or there's not enough exercising of spiritual gifts We're very quick with those judgments. But if the local church really is the body of Christ and Jesus really does nurture and tenderly care for it by providing everything it needs to be his body, then who am I to despise the body of Christ that he's equipped in this particular way? But there's another question as well. Is every gathering of believers church? Didn't Jesus say, Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with you? So is every gathering of believers church? Well, yes, Jesus did say that, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, but no, not every gathering of believers is church. The context in Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus is talking about is about church discipline. I take it from reading the passage, Jesus' point was that even a church of just two or three, which is a pretty little church, frankly, just me and you, hey, glad you came to church today. Here we are. He says, even if there's just two or three going to the extreme limit, because you can't go much lower, then it's just one. And it's hard to gather as one. (laughs) He says, so even if you went as small as you can go for the church, I am still there with you in the Spirit even as this tiny church seeks to discipline a wayward sister or brother. He wasn't, I think, in this passage setting out to say that every gathering of two or three Christians equals a church. In fact, there are some clear examples in the New Testament where there's gatherings of believers, even gatherings talking about Christian things that are not regarded as church. I'll give you one reference for that, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 35, 1 Corinthians 14, 35, and you can look that up later. So, a bunch of Christians sitting in a bar, this is not a joke by the way, a bunch of Christians <laughs> sitting in a bar is not church. However, you could have church in a bar. A family talking about Christian things is not church although you can have family church. A home group Bible study isn't necessarily church, though you can have a house church. So what then distinguishes a church from not a church? I'm getting a lot of quizzical looks now, so good, it's working. Okay. (laughs) Well, historically, in terms of Reformed Protestant theology, the definition of the church has been something like this the congregation of the saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. Something like that. Now that's helpful. That's very helpful, actually. Though I wonder whether maybe we might tweak it just a little. This is flying a kite at this point, okay? So don't put me to the wall for this one. I think that where the church when we come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come together as His body and therefore consciously seek to be all that the church of God is called to be in the New Testament. I'll give you a very practical example. Is the EU a church? Well, according to my definition just then, we're church when we come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as His body and therefore consciously seek to be all of the Church of God is called to be. By that definition, the E.U. is not a church because we don't think we are. I'm pretty happy with that, actually. <laughs> so you might like to take that up with me later. However, this is the real thing that matters. This is what's critical irrespective of where you fall with whether the EU is technically a church or not, or whether your home group Bible study is a church or not, irrespective of any of that, we are all called as Christians to show the character of Jesus in our relationships with each other. So what that means is it doesn't matter whether you're in church on a Sunday night or whether three hours later you're having a sneaky cheese at Macca's, with your same friends from church, just because you're not technically at church doesn't mean you're now not called to love each other, does it? So you don't need to be the church to act like the church. Do you know what I mean? We're always called to be Jesus' people in the way we relate to each other. And what's more, the New Testament instructions about church give us, say as the EU or or any group of Christians, good guidelines to inform how all our gatherings should function, what we should strive for, what we should value, what we should embody. So our EU community, your small group Bible studies, your youth group, your workplace prayer group, all of them must be characterized by gracious love just as the church must. Which brings us back then to the implications of what it means to be a church of gracious love. Part C, so church by grace, with grace. The central mark of being a church established by such gracious love from Jesus is that we extend the same gracious love to one another. We are to be a church not just established by gracious love, but reflecting gracious love. So, three quick passages... Listen to what Jesus commands in John 13, 34 to 35. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. According to Jesus, the way the world will know that you're his church is not through the sign on the door. It's not even first and foremost because of the message they will hear from the pulpit or the speaker or whatever, the way they will know that you're Jesus Church is because you love each other. It's such a wacky thing to do, love people who are not necessarily like you. Moreover, according to 1 John 4, Love for one another is the litmus test of then you, whether you really love God or not. So 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Whether you love your brothers and sisters in church is the litmus test of whether you really love God or not. And the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 4 is that we're to live in love as those who've been loved. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now I wonder if you just picked the principle in all three passages. The same principle was there in each passage, it's this. What is the great principle of church life, according to the Bible? The great New Testament principle of church life is this, be to one another as Christ has been to us. That's, that's the principle of church life. It was there in all three of those passages, John thirteen thirty four. just as I've loved you, you should love one another. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love. This is the principle of church life. Be to one another as Christ has been to us. In particular, show that same gracious love to one another as he's shown to us. So, what I'm going to do is try and pull the pieces together. and I've got a bit of a diagram. What, in this talk, what have we seen so far? I'm going to try and bring all the pieces together so that we can launch into some hard application. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Here's the pieces that we've seen. First of all, through God's gracious love, He has established us as this one new humanity in Christ. Okay? We've seen that. We are called as His new humanity in Christ to reflect God's gracious love for each other. What happens when you put these two things together? God's one new humanity in Christ, who are to reflect God's love for each other. Well, the oneness, the oneness of our body means that the way love expresses itself is in maintaining peace in the body. This is what love looks like if we really are one new humanity. We maintain peace. And you can see there's some references from Romans 14, 19. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what I'm going to do is uh, try and then tease out what does it look like for us to in gracious love, seek to maintain peace in our church. So once you stand up, stretch your legs for 30 seconds, and then we'll get into the application. What does this look like in practice? Now, I'm rolling up my sleeves here. Because we're going to do some work together on ourselves. We're going to do some work together on ourselves. Some of the things we're going to talk about now may well, by God's grace, through His Spirit, uh, prick your conscience. That's a good thing. It's never a pleasant thing, but it's a good thing, right? Because we want to be His holy people. And so after we've um, gone through this little section we are going to launch into a time sort of, of reflection and confession for the ways in which maybe we have not lived as God would have us live as His church, both individually and corporately. So maybe symbolically you want to roll up your sleeves as well. Maybe. Let's talk about some threats, some practical threats to the peace that we should have as those who've been united in jesus one new humanity i've got seven threats the first the threat of ego the threat of ego if i'm trying to build myself up if my number one concern frankly when i go to church is me and what's more if we're each doing the same thing just worried about ourselves we will not have peace in christ's body listen to how paul exhorts the church at ephesus This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Paul emphasizes just how much unity they have in Christ. There's one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in all. So please keep the peace in all humility and gentleness and love. Now, of course, that's what Jesus has shown us, isn't it? Forbearance, patience, gentleness, and love. The antidote to the peace-destroying disease of ego is humility, gentleness, and the loving patience of Christ. Second threat, the threat from individualism. Western philosophy has conditioned us to be individually minded and we so easily slip into the it's just about me and God. Instead of, it's about God, His people, and me. Our lack of corporate vision means that we can become callous. Because if you're having a bad time, well, that's sad for you, but it's not my life. And it can breed an arrogant self sufficiency. I don't really need this church. I'm streaming Driscoll on my iPad. (laughs) I got Hillsong on my iPod. What really is this group of people going to add to my spiritual growth? But that callous, that self-sufficient attitude is poison to the unity and peace of the church. And frankly, it's not a new problem. Paul had to address similar issues in the first century churches in Rome and in in Corinth. So to the Romans, in Romans 12, 5, he says, We who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members... And you would expect him to say he what? Individually we are members of Christ. That's not what he says. Individually we are members one of another. It's not just you and Jesus. In Christ, we've been made members of each other. So you can't just head off as some lone ranger Christian. Moreover, despite whatever you might be tempted to think, you actually need other Christians. You need other members of Christ. Oh, I know you're so impressive yourself. So self-sufficient. It's just that God's Word tells me that you need other people. You need the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We all need each other in the body of Christ. And I'm talking about your congregation your local gathering we all need each other in that gathering thirdly third danger threat the threat of divergent backgrounds there's always a danger in the church that we will split along cultural lines so for the first century church the great danger with jews and gentiles even though they'd all come to these groups had both come to faith in jesus the danger was they keep splitting along these cultural lines but that divides the one new humanity, right? The body of Christ. This was a real problem in Rome and Paul addresses it explicitly in the book of Romans, chapters 14 and 15. You can see there on the page that Paul uses the principle we identified earlier. What was the principle of New Testament church life? Be to one another as Christ has been to us. He uses this principle. He says, Romans fifteen, seven. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. So just as Christ has welcomed us, whatever our background, where to extend that same unprejudiced welcome to each other. Now I suspect for us it's not about Jew Gentile, but the lines that are potentially that can, that can be erected are things like cultural lines or racial lines, stylistic lines, even ageist lines. So just being honest, if a Chinese sister or brother in Christ walked into your largely Anglo church, or frankly for that matter, a white Anglo sister or brother walked into your Chinese church, what sort of welcome would they get? Would it be the same if an Anglo walked into your Anglo church, or a Chinese believer walked into your Chinese church? So often our welcome is less than the welcome that Christ offers. Which brings considerable shame on us since we're Christ's body and we know the welcome he offers because he's welcomed us. Now let's move on because there's some more threats. So threat number four, the pain of sin. When another sister or brother sins against you, or sins against actually someone else in the body, there is a real problem in the body of Christ. What is the way of gracious love when that happens? Now we're going to get to the, how do you address a sister or brother who has sinned? What do you What do you do in gracious love towards them? We're going to address that on Thursday night. But for the moment, assuming that this sinning sister or brother has come to some sort of repentance, has come to repentance in Christ, if they've done that, what ought my response be? Well, Paul applies that same principle yet again of be to one another as Christ has been to us. You can see it there on your book, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the be like Christ principle means in gracious love, we will be a forgiving community. We won't bear grudges. We'll forgive. Now that doesn't mean it will be easy, but it does mean that as a church of God's people, we will reflect the truth of His forgiving love in our relationships with each other. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive. The fifth threat, differences of opinion. Now a helpful example of this is when Paul was writing to the churches in Rome. There was a dispute among the Christians in Rome. Some of the believers in Rome, rightly right, they had their theology right, rightly they understood that their freedom in Jesus meant that they could eat anything. The old food laws were gone. But others in the Christian community there at Rome had a conscience issue about it and felt that they really should keep the Old Testament food laws. And this was causing real tension in the church. And one of the key reasons Paul wrote Romans was to sort it all out. His way forward was to apply this same principle yet again. Have a look at Romans 15, 1-3. We who are strong, he says, ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbour for the good purpose of building up the neighbour. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So you saw the principle there, we're to imitate Jesus and not please ourselves, Even if we have the freedom to do what we want. But actually, like Jesus, it's more important to please our sister or brother and not put any stumbling block in their way than it is to please myself, even enjoying the legitimate freedom I have in the gospel. We are free to serve. To give up that very freedom in gracious love. And what this uh, episode reveals is that there are actually concentric circles of issues within the church. There are issues that are at the very centre, ones that are crucial to the Christian faith. I'd put there issues like the Lordship of Jesus or His atoning death, that would go under a crucial issue, or His physical resurrection or His giving of the Spirit to believers in Christ. All of those, I would say, are crucial issues. Those are the issues that are in the historic creeds. They're in the EU's doctrinal basis. And the reason they're in the doctrinal basis is precisely because we believe these issues are crucial. But also there's issues that can be significant without being crucial. Issues like this one in Rome over what should we eat or shouldn't we eat. It was a significant issue, especially pastorally, but it's not so crucial that they had to all be of the same mind. Paul does not say, look, all the food is fine, so get over it and pass the bacon. Instead, what he says is, If your brothers or sisters are having a difficulty with this, let it go. Don't eat the food. Whether you eat the food or not is not the big issue. Showing love for each other, that is crucial. So other issues I think that might fall into this significant, yes, but not crucial category might be today for us, issues like what role... Ought women take in church leadership? Significant issue? I would suggest not crucial. Whether you baptise infants or not? Significant, but not crucial. What sort of church government you ought to have? Significant, not crucial. These are all matters over which, amongst ourselves, we might have different opinions based on our readings of Scripture. At least I hope it's based on your reading of Scripture. And so we can fruitfully discuss them amongst ourselves, and frankly we ought to do it because they are significant, but I do not think they are absolutely crucial. I will still have my opinion from Scripture, and you will still have your opinion from Scripture, but like the Romans, we can still fellowship together. Although it may require one of us to lovingly forego the freedom we believe that we have in Christ in order to serve the other and maintain peace in the body. And we can still humbly seek to understand the Scriptures better together on whatever the issue is at hand. Now then outside that, there's still then the interesting and then the irrelevant issues. There are all sorts of interesting issues, which frankly are not very important. Was two Thessalonians written before one Thessalonians? Oh, you didn't know. There's a theory that says it was. And what's more, it makes some sense and it even shapes how you might interpret some of the details. But whether or not it's true is not crucial. And it's not really even in the significant category. You can't really imagine calling a church meeting to resolve the tension within the body over which Thessalonian letter came first. It's interesting, it has some implications, and that's about it. Now, I personally would put the issue of whether God created the universe in seven 24-hour periods in that category. Though for some, maybe it will be a significant issue. But I hope it's not crucial. Then there's the irrelevant issues. Should we stand up or sit down to sing? (laughs) Should we have three welcomers or four? do we use Ariel or Gotham? (laughs) That's for the font Nazis out there. Let me say very clearly on these matters, it does not matter. (laughs) And now the tweets are going to go crazy, I know. (laughs) Frankly, there may be some wisdom, let's be honest, there may be some wisdom in going one way or the other, but really it's not a big deal. Now, do you get, though, even as I said, how many welcomers should we have? Do you get that the danger is that we take issues that are irrelevant or just interesting or maybe even significant, and we launch them into the crucial? We let these non-crucial issues create significant divisions between us, and suddenly we're not maintaining the peace of the body. The key is to know what sort of issue Are you facing in your church? Is it significant? Or is it just interesting? Or is it crucial? And you might be saying, yeah, well I'd never be so stupid as to break the unity of Christ's body over something as irrelevant as fonts. I mean, really. Well, let me ask you this question. How important to you is the type of music used at church? If you turned up on this Sunday, right, from Ancon, awesome, awesome, it was great. We had the drum kit in the centre of the stage. I mean, once upon a time, they had, you know, a holy table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We got rid of that. We had a drum kit. Mm, yeah, yeah, but we can talk about that over question time. I got issues. I got issues, people. I got issues. Okay. Are they crucial issues? Are they significant issues? So you turn up to church this Sunday and they say, oh look, we've made a decision that from now on we're only using a bagpipe for music. <laughs> and you say, just one or two? <laughs> one. One. In all seriousness, if that happened, how much of a fuss would you make? You would explode. You would fully explode, wouldn't you? You would think this was the most outrageous thing that had ever happened in the history of Christendom. What sort of issue is music? What sort of issue is it, really? Crucial? Significant. Really? Okay, moving on. There's a potential threat to our peace from the variety of giftings. Because God gives different gifts to different people through his spirit and we're going to talk about that tomorrow. So the final threat then, threat number seven, is the threat from idealism. And all I'm going to do here is really this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Bonhoeffer here, in his quote, is pointing out the threat to the body that each of us become. We each become a threat to the body of Christ when we come to church with our idealistic ideas of what church should be like. That's what he says. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law and he judges the brethren and God himself accordingly because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We do not complain of what God does not give us, We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given enough? Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace? Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this any day, even the most difficult and distressing day? Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I, too, stand under the word of God? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed, which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. So, conclusion. Conclusion. Before we are anything else as Jesus Church, we are a community of gracious love. Before we are a proclaiming community, before we are a praising community, before we're a a missional community or a ministering community, we are a community of gracious love. We're a family established by God's gracious love And as those who know the gracious love of God, we've been called by Him to embody that same gracious love in our life with one another and with the wider world. Before anything else, this is who we are, Jesus' church of gracious love. Now, I'm not pretending that showing such gracious love to each other is easy. I know it's not. Life in the body of Christ, if you want to fill in the blanks on your page, life in the body of Christ, though, it is a divine privilege, It is for your divine good. But most of all, life in the body of Christ, it's for God's divine glory. So Paul, in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, says this. He says, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, I mean. So the question I want to ask you is, do you love the church? I don't mean in abstract, I mean the church in which God has placed. Do you love the church? Do you love your church? And also because I want to fight the individualism that captures us so easily, do we love the church? Are we showing that gracious love to each other? Are we bring honour to, to Jesus' name as we are the Evangelical Union at Sydney University? Do we proclaim His great love for us in the way that you love me and I love you and we love each other? Do we love the church? And are we as the EU going to love God's church wherever he's placed us? Are, are we as EU is going to be the ones through whom God brings great blessing to, his, to the gatherings of his people? Because no matter what is going on in your church, you are going to be a person of gracious love. Because, friends, by God's grace, we can do wonderful things in his name. In his church. We finished last night by saying, you know, that now is our time, you know. The, yeah, you, the whole spiel, anyway, you got it last night. What are we going to do? Here's the first thing be a community of gracious love. That is what we are to do. And that way we're in glory to our Father in heaven through the church. So let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your astounding, gracious love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the riches of your grace to us we praise you we thank you and we pray that by the power of your spirit you would transform us and change us so that we might be gracious lovers of you and of one another to bring glory to jesus name to be your people and to show forth your gracious love to the world we pray for your help in this In his name. Amen.